we sit in Revelation, again, the, the passage that we're in, I've, I've communicated multiple times, it's, it's miserable, and the misery is because there is our God reaching to his creation with the power of his salvation, and his creation is still saying no. And this is where we're going to start this morning. So today is the 4th of July. It is the, the day that we celebrate and that we remember uh, this Second Continental Conference declaring our independence as 13 states, declaring independence from who? Who knows our history? From England, the state of Great Britain, King George III. Are you independent? I am fiercely independent. And it can be something that I submit to the Lord, and it can be something that I rebel against the Lord in, in my personality. And here's, here's the idea. Um, we were talking this morning. Do you think John the Baptist was a fiercely independent man? Independent from his culture? Submitted to God, yes. But when it, when it comes to his, how he stood in opposition to the culture of his day, I imagine he was a very fiercely independent man, fully dependent upon God. And this is this is this dichotomy that we have to sit in. We're we're both we're mixed. Um, as I age, as I become more self-aware, I have this understanding about how fiercely independent I really am. And this is how it comes in my life. Anybody like to be told what to do, given directions? I hate being told what to do. Like, I like instructions. I like being, I like information. I like uh, even, like, I like to learn new things. But if I already know how to do something, don't tell me what to do. And again, this is, this is not me telling you this. It's, it's what I process through internally. Go, go ask my bride about if, if she gives me instructions where I think that I already know what I'm doing and how to achieve what I'm doing, and she comes alongside of me and, and offers kind, friendly wife advice, as she should, because usually I'm wrong anyways, um, my flesh just wells up. But here, again, this is, this is our, as a nation, like we are founded upon this whole idea of independence and liberty, freedom, that our form of government, that we would represent one another in our culture. And this is what England was withholding from the colonies, was that ability to govern themselves. And again, you can go read through the Declaration of Independence and all the different bullet points in regards to why, as a culture, we declared our independence. So this is all tying to where we are today. This is tying into the T-shirts in Revelation 11, when the seventh trumpet is sounded in verse 15. There's this declaration that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There is God himself. This is the sounding of the seventh trumpet is the declaration that the kingdoms of the world are, are no longer independent. They are no longer allowed to govern themselves. They will now be forcefully submitted to the kingdom of our God, which we as believers are, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we want your kingdom to come. 
But the description that we're sitting in in chapters 12 and 13, these, these really big themes, this is Satan in his death throes, where his authority that he has been granted to rule in this world, that we see him ruling today, the authority that God has granted to him at this point in future history is being stripped away from him. And you watch that, that fierce independence as a creature. As a creature, Satan represents, my creator will not rule me. And this is where like, my fierce independence must be submitted continually to my creator. I have to recognize that I am a creature. And as a creature, I am subject to the authority, to the will, to the plans, and the purposes of my creator. Now, I am just like you. I rebel against that every day. I well up in my flesh. I well up in my pride. And not so, Lord. Let's do it my way and not your way. But I have to, as a, as a fiercely independent individual, and again, this is... This is an aspect of my personality that I'm growing in and my understanding and, and how it plays out as I interact with people, how it, in, how it plays out and how I interact with God. Um, and it's something that I have to keep in check. I don't want you telling me how to drive, when to turn my blinker on, how fast to write, all these different things. Like, I don't want to be told. Just give me the instructions and then I'll make up my own mind about how to apply it. And I have to be really cautious with that with God. So here in Revelation, we are watching Satan being cast, having his authority stripped from his authority over the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world, God has now taken, seized his authority. He is now ruling and reigning. We're watching Satan in his death throes, so to say, cast out of heaven. This proclamation in chapter 12 of woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. And now we're sitting in all this image, beast imagery. And again, it's imagery. So Satan is described as a dragon in that, that imagery in regards to his character. Uh, the future Antichrist is being described as a beast and what that refers to in his character. Same thing with this false prophet, which is where we got halfway through last week, but we're going to pick up uh, the mark of the beast and all that kind of stuff this morning, which is... Very popular in culture. So, Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, and we'll get into a little bit of 14 this morning also. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast. Remember, the first beast is Antichrist. Antichrist is receiving his authority from Satan. This Next beast, known, identified later on as the false prophet, he is exercising all the same authority, the same power of the first beast in his presence. He causes, he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. And sit in, that, sit in the definition of worship. This is, this, is a, this is an act of submission. You are bowing down, you are kneeling, it's, it's, it's head on the floor and mind, heart, behavior, worship, the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs, 
so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sights of men. We talked about this stuff last week. He deceives those, causes to wander, uh, causes human beings to be led astray from their creator. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast, and this is where we'll pick up this morning after we finish reading here, to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath, literally spirit, to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark, a stamp, on their right hands or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast or is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now we get into good news. Chapter 14. Then I looked and behold, a lamb, Jesus, standing on Mount Zion, And with him, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So getting back, we're going to wrap up this, this second beast, the false prophet, Remember, as we said in chapters 12 and 13, all of this imagery in regards to the nation of Israel, in regards to Satan's persecution of the nation of Israel, ultimately that persecution of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, this war that breaks out in heaven, Satan being cast out, Satan being cast to the earth, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because there's a limited time left, and as Satan is cast to the earth, he is persecuting the nation of Israel, He is persecuting all who are believers in Christ, and we believe that this is the time in future history when the nation of Israel will wake up to Jesus as their Messiah. As Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. In chapter 13, we are introduced to the Antichrist, and that in the first half of the chapter, which again, you have to sit with Daniel, um, sit with Paul in 2 Thessalonians in regards to the what is communicated about this individual's character and what he shall do. And now we have this other beast, the false prophet, who is causing all of humanity to worship this man who, again, we sat in this last week, that we are told that he is going to be killed. He's going to be dead, dead, as I used this last week, because there's no dancing around the language. 
Um, some interpret that it's the, the Roman Empire that has fallen away and that is no longer a, a government entity in this world today, that in the future, this empire, empirical form of government is going to resurrect, which we do believe that and understand that. But some commentators want to press into that this passage, this deadly wound that was healed, is talking about a form of government to revive Roman Empire rather than an individual because Satan have the power to resurrect an individual from the death, messes with our theology and our doctrine and makes us really uncomfortable and ought to. And the reality is Satan is only allowed to do what God gives him the ability and the power to do, correct? So we are told there is a great deception coming in the future. And this great deception, this guy that is going to rise as the world leader, we are told that he is going to receive a deadly wound. Somebody's going to, by this, it says by a sword. He was wounded by the sword. Somebody's going to hack off this guy's head, so to say, and pierce him with a sword, and he's going to be dead dead. And Satan is going to be granted the power and the authority to bring him back from the death for the purpose of deception. And the world's going to believe this miracle, this individual is going to enter into the temple of God and declare himself to be God through this resurrection. Now, all of this imagery, when you sit in the reality of who God is, who Jesus Christ is, what Jesus has done, the kingdom of God, just all of the imagery that God has communicated about himself, Satan is counterfeiting it all. This resurrection of the Antichrist in the future is a counterfeit resurrection. It is, a, it is an act of deception, but it is going to be a supernatural act that will occur in the future that is going to cause people to put their head on the ground and say, that man is God, my creator, my king, my savior. And this false prophet is going to cause, with the exact same authority, he's going to perform these miracles that are going to deceive we talked about this last week, just because something supernatural happens does not mean that it is an act of God, that it is God's, uh, that it, God is the one who is performing that power. Satan has very real power and very deceptive power in this world, so just because something supernatural happens doesn't automatically mean it is good. And through this process, we are told that an image is going to be set up, so... The word for image is icon. This is an icon of Paul. So when I went to Greece, this is one of the trinkets that I brought back as a souvenir. And it, it just it helped me in my understanding of how a lot of people engage in their relationship with Jesus as Savior, as Christ, as God, in a very liturgical, orthodox religious system that I am very independent of and rebellious to. So my tour guide helped me understand this is just a family picture. You guys have pictures of your family members? That, by death, that's an icon. It's, it's a stamp. It's an image. But we're not to fall down and worship this, right? This is, a, this is an image of Paul. So you, when you sit in the Greek Orthodox Church, they were communicating the gospel to an illiterate culture. Most of the culture couldn't read. So any Greek Orthodox church that you go into, this has been the face of Paul all throughout history. So you go into a Greek Orthodox church here in Atlanta, or you go into a Greek Orthodox church in Greece, you can go to the wall and you can look up, and there's 
picture of your brother Paul. It's an icon. It's a stamp. But what are we told in regards to this icon that the false prophet is going to command the, those who dwell on the earth to construct? There's, it's probably a statue. Referred to, we think that this is what is the abomination of desolation. There's this image that is going to be placed into the, into the temple. But we're told that the, this false prophet is given the authority to give this image, this statue, breath, spirit. Does that make you uncomfortable? This, this whole section makes me really uncomfortable. Throughout the Old Testament, God mocks those who bow down to idols in the sense of, there's a piece of rock that's been carved. Here's a piece of wood. You know, you chop down this tree, you carve half it into an image, the, other, the rest of it you chop up and you, you, know, you throw into the fire to, firewood to, to make your meal. How foolish is it to bow down to the other piece of wood and say, that's my God. Idols don't see, idols don't speak, they don't walk. That imagery and that idea is used to contrast who God is as the source of life, as the living God, in contrast to the idols that human beings have created. Yet, we are told here in the future, here's a statue, same as the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built, that statue of gold in Daniel chapter 3, where he uh, has, a, has a statue of himself built, what is it, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide? It's important because we'll get into the 666 idea in a minute. Um, bow down to that statue, and whoever doesn't bow down to that statue and recognize me as your sole authority, Nebuchadnezzar says, off with their head. It's the same thing that's going to be fulfilled in the future in regards to the heart of the Antichrist, except Nebuchadnezzar's statue is just a statue. No life. Couldn't talk, couldn't see, couldn't hear. This statue is given breath, and it speaks. That freaks me out. My brain, I want to sit in technology. You know, we're, we're in the day of artificial intelligence where people are, you know, talk to Siri on your phone and Google and Alexa and all these different, right? People have coded all of this stuff, and it responds back to us as it's been programmed. So we can sit in this idea of there's, here's some advanced technology where it's just going to be a statue and it's going to be a machine. That's not what is being described. What is being described is a supernatural, satanic power that is going to be granted to the Antichrist and to this false prophet. This breath, this life is going to be placed into this icon, into this image that represents Antichrist. And it is going to be, it is going to speak. It is going to be alive in whatever fashion. Sounds weird even saying it, sounds weird even declaring it, but that is the level 10, how powerful the deception is going to be in the future. I mean, if, 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 if I were able to animate something and cause that candlestick right there to erupt in, in some fire at the, at the little uh, the seven branches there, and you start hearing voices out of the fire, are you going to think that I'm something special? I'd think that I was something special if I had that kind of power. If somebody else did that, my, my, I would want to listen to what that individual says because that's not normal. There's, there's a source there. But we're told we've got to line up that source with, does it line up with what's true or does this line up with opposition to God? 
So in that day, when this statue is erected, all of humanity will be forced to bend the knee, and if you don't bend the knee to worship the statue and to represent and to worship who the statue represents, which is the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is receiving his authority from the dragon, who is Satan. If you do not worship this unholy trinity, you will be executed. That's the testimony that's uh, off with their head is what's going to occur in that day. And then the, the, the symbol, the outward symbol, is not just a, a, uh, an action of bowing down. It's taking on your right hand or on your forehead a stamp. So again, remember the whole idea of counterfeit. So in chapter 7, we have this seal of God, this angel who has this stamp, the seal of God that goes and seals 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. They're sealed by God. Again, this is a counterfeit what Satan is doing. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is uh, the famous passage. It's called the Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall worship the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. When you wake up in the morning, when you go throughout the day, when you go to bed at night, you will teach your children who the true and living God is. His word you will have bound to your right hand. So you will see in Orthodox Judaism where they have this very specific prayer process where they wrap this, this piece of leather. and I mean, there's, there's all this ritual that's associated with it. But it's, the imagery is you are binding God's word to your right hand and all that the right hand symbolizes. The word of God will be as frontlets between your eyes. There's this, this box that's called the phylactery, which one of the verses is in that box is so that the, the word of God will be in the center of your mind and your heart all the days of your life. This is the command. So when Satan is counterfeiting, saying that this stamp, this stamp of the beast, whether it's uh, the image of the beast, whether it is the name of the beast, whether it is the number of the beast, there is a stamp on the right hand or on the forehead that will be taken in submission. This is not technology. It's not a barcode tattoo. It's not some, it's not some chip that can be stuck in your hand. You know, we all, we all, does anybody use cash anymore? I have cash in my wallet, and it sits in my wallet because I never use it. You can pay with your watches, you can pay with your phones, you pay with your credit cards. We're already a cashless society. That's not the emphasis that's being placed upon here. This is not something that you can be tricked into. How many of you heard that the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast? Anybody heard that? That's nuts. But we're fearful of these things because there we do have a, a fear, not a fearful, a fierce independence from anybody that stands in opposition to God. I have a fierce opposition against Satan, against his kingdom, against his desires. We are told that the Antichrist is going to be the leader of a one-world government. So I have a fierce opposition to globalism and the consolidation of power in any form. Because when human beings consolidate power, human beings abuse that power. When governments abuse that power, human beings die. And who are the ones that suffer the most? The poor, the powerless, the weak, those who don't have a voice, the widows, the orphans. Who does God pour out his heart to continually through the word of God? 
those who are being abused by whatever false authority is over them. God fiercely protects the powerless with his power and his protection. And that even if I die, I'm still victorious in him. So there's going to be this stamp that is not something that any human soul can be tricked into taking and receiving. It's not going to be a vaccine that is stuck into you and all of a sudden you're going to be recoded to worship the beast. You know, just weird stuff, right? It's not some chip that is going to limit whether you can buy or sell, you know, in, in tracking. Again, like we got to have caution with all of this. As we use our credit cards, as we use, if you're ordering from Amazon, if you're ordering from wherever, you know, you are being tracked because they're tracking you for marketing because they want you to continue to buy more of the products. And again, when people have our personal information, they can abuse that information, right? So we need to have wisdom in that in regards to our culture. That will continue to be used and abused by uh, those who have power. So we have to have caution and all that, but it's not associated with the mark of the beast. An individual soul who takes this mark is saying, Satan is my God. The Antichrist is my God. The false prophet, this, this is my religious leader. I am bowing down in submission. And then we have all of this warning that anybody who rebels against the true and living God, which again, all of this is going to be very clear at this time in future history. There's going to be no denial. We are reading this information right now. When these events begin to transpire in humanity, people are going to be able to go to this document and say, it says it right here. And it says it right here so that the true living God, when these things happen, you will know that he is the creator and that he is God. So humanity will be left without excuse, and they will know clearly who they are choosing. And again, as I was talking about earlier, I have a fiercely independent personality that God exposes me to more and more that must be submitted to my creator as a creature. There is a part of me that wants to tell God. Right now, there's a part of me that wants to tell my creator, no, not so. My will be done. And that's, a, that's offensive to me. It's offensive to God. And I ask God to, to clean out that heart and to clean out that mind, that language, the, the behaviors. Jesus and Jesus alone, day in and day out, I am choosing to submit to you. God help me because you promised that you will make me perfect just like you are perfect. You will give to me your life. You will give to me your whole holiness. I desperately need you because in me, when I look in the mirror, I'm with Paul, oh wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Thank God that he sent Jesus. This name, not in my imagination, not in my myth, not in somebody else's religion, but Jesus in truth. So this, this mark, it will be a separator and a permanent separator. There will be no, well, there will be lots of trick and lots of deception, right? But people will believe the deception. But as a believer right now, there is nothing technology-wise, medical-wise, um, that can trick you into taking this mark. So all those who teach 
and propagate that kind of information. It really is foolishness. Just to so ground yourself in regards to who Jesus is and his authority over you as your king and your savior today. So the number 666, we're told that, that here's some wisdom. If you have the mind to understand, here's the, the calculation and the ideas that a number, uh, the, a letter, so the, in our alphabet, A would be 1, B would be 2, C would be 3, and so forth. So in the Hebrew alphabet, Greek alphabet, Latin alphabet, their, their, uh, their alphabet had numerical value. So one of the main ideas is that the numerical value of the Antichrist name is going to add up in total 666. So one of, them, one of the instant uh, interpretations of this is in, re in reference to Caesar Nero. So when you take Caesar Nero's name from Latin and you translate it into, transliterate it into Greek and you change the spelling a little bit, it adds up to 666. Kind of got to bend into a pretzel to get there. You can say with the Roman, uh, the Roman numerals, so you have I, V, uh, what is it, I, V, X, L, C, D, those numbers. So I is 1, V is 5, X is 10 and so forth, the Roman numerals add up to 666. The numbers 1, 2, 3, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, all the way to plus 36 equals 666. There's all these, and if you just Google, give me a list of all those who, whose names add up to 666 and who have been identified as the Antichrist throughout history. It's endless. So I really don't think that this number is for us today. When the Antichrist is on the world scene, and he is in that position, and he has been resurrected from the dead, and he is standing in the temple declaring himself to be God and demanding to be worshipped as God, his name will add up to 666, and it will be very clear to the culture at that time. This is a warning for people in that time. It will be very clear. That guy is this prediction right now, right here. Turn from him and run. That's what this information is for. It's for us to understand the character, but it's not for us to be fearful today and to get all bent out of shape and to name names. This individual will be very clearly defined to humanity at that time, and human beings will know, I am choosing Jesus or I am choosing anti-Jesus. And now, again, all the imagery that's been given is all this counterfeit. And then in chapter 14, we have the truth. Again, the, the chronology on all this, is, it's very difficult to like, try and place all of this, all these visions in a chronological order because here John sees Jesus standing on Mount Zion. So what are we told? When Jesus comes back in Revelation 19... The place that he steps down on is where? Same place that he ascended from. Mount of Olives. What happens when he steps foot on the Mount of Olives? It's going to be split in two. And again, you can sit in Zechariah and the prophecy that's there. But here there's this vision of the Lamb. And Jesus is constantly referred to as the Lamb in him revealing himself as our sacrifice. So here's the true sacrifice. Here's the real king. 
standing on Mount Zion. Why is Mount Zion important? Because we've already, uh, we went through Psalm 2 a few weeks ago. Where did God say that he set his king? On his holy hill. I have set my king on my holy hill, Zion. Here again, this is, this is the king standing on Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. This area, Jerusalem, is the, is the place where God chose to place his name. And again, this, this name that we've been given to cry out for salvation, to cry out to for life, to bend and to worship as our creator. This is all the imagery. Who's with him? Redeemed. I, the, the commentaries get really weird on this. Why they want to try and say that this 144,000 is different from the 144,000 Jews that were sealed in Revelation 7, I don't have a clue why. I don't know why it makes people un- uncomfortable. I don't know why they want to include all of Israel or all of the church. Or it, it's, it's weird. Here John is seeing a vision of the Lamb with those who he has sealed, which is standing in direct contrast to the ones who were just sealed by Satan with his mark and his image. Now the truth, the contrast is being given. Here is the real king. Here are those that he has sealed with his name. And what are they doing? They're singing. They're rejoicing. Look at the the imagery. It says that John hears these many voices. And again, whenever the voice from heaven is spoken, there's lightning and thunder, and it's, it's, it's powerful. But he's hearing the sound of harps. Later on in Revelation, when Babylon falls, it says all of this music ceases. There is no song in hell. There is no song in the pit. There is only torment. And again, the description that's being given is the song that he places within a redeemed heart. This, this knowledge that, all right, are you a creature? Like, like seriously, did you evolve? Or did an all-powerful being make you? And if he's all-powerful, does, does he know you? Did he choose to make you? Did he place you in your context, in your time, plan A on purpose? Yeah. And he is the one who looked down into the sea of humanity. And this Jesus chose me. Why? I have a clue. I have no value apart from my creator. The only thing that I am able to produce is stuff that decays, darkness, you know, myself. I'm not, I'm not able to produce anything that is enduring and permanent. I'm not good, I'm not kind, I'm not patient, I'm not gracious, I'm not merciful. Oh, I'm better than the next guy, of course. But I'm not holy, perfect, eternal, right. You know, all these declarations that the Almighty God has declared himself to be, that's what what I yearn for. I yearn to think clean thoughts. I yearn to be loving and compassionate. When I see Jesus in the Gospels, he, he melts my heart. 
What I see and know and understand that he chose me out of the sea of humanity, I look at why me, Lord? Why, why, why am I one who has bent the knee to you and has been sealed by you and your name is on me for all eternity and my friends have rejected you? Why? I don't know. But that reality and that understanding puts a song in my heart. And it's a song of the redeemed. And here it's specific. For this specific group of 144,000, they're special. You're not a part of it. I'm not a part of it. These are 144,000 future individuals, whether they're alive today and Jesus come back quick. These individuals are going to be set apart by the purpose of God. I'm not one of the 12 apostles. My name is not written on one of the foundation stones of heaven as the apostles' names are. So it's not that God is excluding me from something, but here's a unique group of people that he is going to seal and that he is going to protect. And again, the, the, the um, what's, the, what's the right word? The, um, how chapter 7, where he sealed the, this group earlier and all the information that we, the continuity, I guess, all the information that we've just read about, and to know and understand that this group has been uniquely protected from Satan's wrath against man at this period in history. They are going to be 144,000 witnesses for the Lamb that are going to preach the gospel to humanity. Again, God is going to make it abundantly clear who the king is and what is true. At the same time, Satan's power to deceive is going to be high. This group is unique. They have a specific song that only they know and only they can learn. However, as we just sit in this idea of Jesus and his redeemed, there is a song that he places in our hearts. As we sit here and worship, like this morning, it is well with my soul. It's written by a human being. But a human being who knew a Savior. He knew a human being who was suffering. A human being who was crying. And God put a song in his soul. Say, I love you. I trust you. So I'm, I'm good. This, this, this hurts. God, help me in my pain. I can't imagine losing my spouse. I can't imagine losing a child. And God bless you. And God love you. And pour himself into you continually for those of you who have gone through those experiences. But to have that song in your soul that says, it's well. My God is good. He is gracious. This is the world that he has created. It is broken by sin. Sin brings death. Sin brings suffering. Sin brings all this hate, all this strife, all this war. But he's told me the future. There's coming a day where our Lamb our substitutionary sacrifice is going to stand on God's holy hill of Zion with his redeemed. This specific vision is in its context, but we can sit in another context. There is a day where you and I are going to stand in the Jerusalem that is in this world with our lamb. 
There is a day coming in the future that we are told in Revelation when God's going to wipe away the heavens and the earth. There's going to be a new heaven and new earth and a new Jerusalem. And you are going to stand with your lamb as the redeemed out of the earth for all eternity, singing to him. And you will never get bored of it. The songs will never get old. They will always be new for all eternity. How does that work out? I don't know, but it's going to be awesome. But what is, what, is, what is the imagery given to this 144,000? It's the same imagery that's given to you. Paul tells the Corinthian church that his desire for them is that he is seeking to present them as a chaste virgin to Jesus the day that you stand before Jesus. It's, this, it's the same imagery that's being given, and this is, this is holy war imagery. There is a final war and final battle that is coming in the future, and the imagery that is being used to describe it is God as the warrior king. And you see this all over the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament also. The language of those who are God's warriors. Um, David, remember when uh, um, Jesus is being railed against by the Pharisees because his disciples are plucking the heads of the grain and they're eating the grain as they're walking along and they're doing it on the Sabbath and they're being accused of working on the Sabbath. Jesus tells them, haven't you ever heard of when David, he was hungry, his men were hungry, and he went and he, and he ate and he got the bread from the priest that was the holy bread that only the priests were supposed to eat and all these common men ate. Do you remember that story? Well, those common men, the priest, as he's talking with David, he asks this question, have, have the men been kept from women? Are they chaste? And that's this, this whole idea that's in this holy war imagery. There is a separation. Remember when uh, David sleeps with Bathsheba and he tries to bring Uriah home to cover up his sin and all that kind of stuff? What does Uriah do? He stays away from his wife because he is engaged in war. The Ark of the Covenant is in battle. His brothers are in war. How could I go and do I need to remain chaste. That's the imagery that's being given in this, in this passage. So it's not that they're not married. The idea is that they are chaste, that they are virgins in regards to their relationship with God. And again, it's not who they made themselves to be. It's who God has made them to be in their relationship with him. And it's the exact same definition that we have. The Old Testament calls the nation of Israel the virgin daughter of the Lord. Um, New Testament calls us uh, this virgin bride of the Lamb, Jesus, who is the bridegroom. And again, all of this is imagery to describe the relationship. And as redeemed, he has made us undefiled. Man, just sit in that. Just, uh, I'm a defiled man. I've done absolutely wicked things on purpose. But because I believe in Jesus as my Savior, I am undefiled. I have been washed in the blood of my Lamb. I know what I've been forgiven of. I know what I deserve. I know what the promises in regards to what he has promised to give, not just to me, but all of us through faith in him. And again, this imagery, he is our shepherd. 
The sheep follow in the lamb. We follow him wherever he goes, where he leads, where he sends. He will provide. It will be uncomfortable. He will stretch us, but we follow him wherever he goes. We are the redeemed. We have been purchased. He has stepped into the slave market of humanity, and he has bought us and freed us and given us liberty and given us independence from sin, independence from death, independence from all other authority for the willful choice to be fully dependent upon him. Do you fight submitting yourself to him every day? I do. I, I, have to, I have to tell myself not to depend. It's easy to depend upon Jesus. But I have to give myself that constant exhortation. Blake, worship him. Bend the knee to him. Yield to him. Let him change your mind. Don't demand to do it the way that you want to do it, but submit to his instruction. Follow him wherever he goes as one who has been bought. And then again, the imagery of this, these first fruits, these 144,000, I believe it's to be understood as the first fruits of this time, even first fruits of the nation of Israel. When you sit in the whole idea of first fruits in the Old Testament, there's, it's a recognition of, of gratitude, of thankfulness that God is the one who has supplied this. It's his yield, it's his fruits, and you're giving it back. The idea that Jesus is the first fruit of the dead, he is the first one risen from the dead for all eternity. As first fruits, he has promised to give to us that same life forever and ever, but he is the first fruit of it. Again, all of this is imagery. In their mouth, no deceit. Again, Jacob, he was a deceiver. His name was changed to Israel and his whole life transition. Um, this, uh, when Jesus in Isaiah 53, that declaration of the suffering servant in the mouth of the suffering servant, there was no deceit. Again, all the descriptions of his character are stamped and imprinted upon all of those who have been sealed by him through faith in him. In their mouth is no deceit. They are without fault before the throne of God. Worship team, come on up. Come on up. This, uh, the word uh, without fault is to be unblemished. This world has marked me in so many different ways, has scarred me in so many different ways. I have blemished myself and soiled myself and all of that gross imagery in so many different ways. And again, this, this, is, this is where that independence that God has given, this is what presses me into his image. This is what drives me to worship him. This is what drives me to serve him. This is what drives me to, to honor him, to attempt to glorify him in everything that I do, to sit and study, to sit here and communicate. It's because I know exactly what he is removed from me. 
I know the ways of the world, and I know what it's like to be free from them. I know the darkness that I would abide in for all eternity, and the torment and the angst, that gnashing of teeth. Before I even knew the name of Jesus, I knew what that was by a vision from him. That I can remember to this day. I mean, this is over 30 years ago for me, before I even knew the name of Christ to cry out to him for salvation. I know what he's freed me from. I know what he's bought me out of, and I know what he's promised me. That's, what, that's what's so incredible about the contrast is in these last couple chapters, we have all of the ooh and the disgust of sin at a level 10 and all of its authority in humanity and how foolish human beings can be, myself included, in standing in rejection against the Creator. And then we sit in all of the, the beauty, the holiness, the power, the glory, the kingship, the sovereignty, the light, the grace, the love, the song. Jesus, all we want is you. And we ask that you would define yourself continually to each one of us in spirit and in truth. Let us know you. Let us know the Father. Let us know the Spirit. Let us experience you. We're studying your word because you've given us this promised blessing that we'll be favored. How? Because we'll know what's true. Because we'll know what's true, we'll understand what is counterfeit and deceptions and lies. Lord, I don't have to be afraid to be tricked out of my relationship with you because you promised to keep me. You promised that there is nothing that can remove me from your love. Satan cannot remove me. He cannot take me out of your hand. I praise you for that knowledge. Keep me, Lord. Change me. Make me holy. Make me clean. Thank you for the promise that this is who you have already made me through faith in you and for that promise of the future, Lord. There is coming a day when I get to open up my eyes and I get to look into the face of my King, my Lamb, forever and ever because I will be remade made new in your image for all eternity. Thank you for that knowledge. Fill us with your spirit now as we worship you, as we remember your body, as we remember your blood. Which will be done, Lord. It's in Jesus' name.